And now, back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more sports and torts on TalkZone.com. This is Elliot Harris without David Spada today, but with one of the more entertaining NFL or AFL players of all time, former Northwestern standout, Fred the Hammer Williamson. I didn't realize you went to college in Northwestern in the 50s. Not only that, but Eric Singer was my coach at Northwestern. Yeah, a lot of people just remember him from Notre Dame, not from Northwestern, but you were on the team with uh, accomplished broadcaster Irv Cross. Yeah, Irv and I were good buddies. He was from the he was from the, the area there. He was from uh, he was an Indiana boy. Uh, Eric and I and Irv Cross came to Northwestern at the same time. And left at the same time. When I left and went to the pros, Era left Northwestern and went to Notre Dame. And when we came to Northwestern, Northwestern hadn't won a game in 27 years. How did you get from Gary, Indiana to Northwestern? <laughs> That's a big jump, dude. I was spent part of my life in Gary, Indiana, and part in Chicago. Uh, fortunately, when I left high school, I had I had good grades. I was a uh, a minus B plus student, so I could I, I could get in any college, but I had scholarship offers as a track track person. I was a hundred yard dash, two hundred, and shot put champ, which was a weird combination. So I went to all the schools. I, I went to all the Big Tens, and I went to all the other schools, visiting the campuses. But the campus I liked the most was Northwestern because it was close to home, and it had a, a high rated educational reputation and I wanted to be an architect. So I went to Northwestern to be an architectural engineer. Not to really play football, but one day I was out on the field practicing my freshman year and uh Aaron had heard about this kid who was like hundred and ninety pounds who was a sprinter. So he came by and asked me if I you know play football and I said, Yeah I play a little football. I said, Why don't you change your scholarship? So after uh, some convincing and some some uh, some perks. I changed my scholarship from uh, track to football. Well, you didn't play defense at Northwestern. You were on the offensive end, right? Yeah, I was a flanker back. I was all American flanker back. I was catching the ball, and and uh, I wasn't concerned about hitting people. I was concerned about scoring touchdowns, and and I didn't really get into defense until I uh, I got drafted by the 49ers. So I went to the 49ers, and the first day of camp, they gave me a red shirt. I said, oh, this is great, man. This means I'm special. This is not, son. <laughs> you, you want to make this team, you're going to have great defense. I said, man, what do you mean defense? I don't you know who I am. <laughs> I said, yeah. You're, you're Fred Williamson. And we, and, uh, you don't have to make this team as a defensive back. I said, I can't cover anybody. Man, I don't know how to run the back. Like, what is this about? He says, well, that's what you're going to have to do. So the first week, man, I'm looking like I never played the game before. Guys are running patterns on me. I'm falling. I'm tripping on my feet. I can't cover nobody. They make me looking real ridiculous. Red Hickey was the coach. He says, uh, well, sir, Mr. Williamson, you don't look like you're going to make this team. We're very disappointed in you. We thought that you could make this adjustment. So you got a few days to uh, redeem yourself or we're going to have to cut you. So, you know, I go back to my room tonight. And I say, hey, man, there's no way I can go back to the ghetto, man, and just tell the boys that I got cut. Are you crazy? I'm the baddest kid in the neighborhood. I'm the toughest guy on the block. I can't make this little poop butt team. Come on. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm like, now I'm like 208 or 10 pounds. And I said, I ain't, I ain't covering nobody. I'm just going to knock everybody down. That's the best way to cover somebody, to knock them down. 
So I came to practice the next day. I got about two yards off of Archie Owens, who was a highly rated uh, pass receiver. And uh, he says, where's this guy? I said, no, no way, man. I'm not getting back. I'm covering this guy right here. He says, okay, make him look stupid again like usual. So Archie made a little fake one step off the line of scrimmage, and I hit him with a forearm and knocked him out. Red Hickey comes running over. He says, damn it, we didn't know what you're doing. I said, I covered him. He says, okay, you got the team made. We just stopped hammering my players so we could get some pass offense in. So that's how I got the name Hammer. So R.C. Owens wasn't running any alley-oops off against you? Uh, he, if I backed up, they had a chance to run. But see, when I when I covered a guy, I started out two yards in his I can tell you what he had for breakfast and lunch and dinner the day before. I didn't let him get past me because in those days, you could bump a player before before the ball was in the air. You could, I mean, he was yours because you couldn't tell if he was running a pass or blocking you. So that way you had the right to defend yourself. So you could hit him and bump him and knock him out, do whatever you wanted to do until the ball was in the air. Once the ball was in the air, you couldn't touch him. Who was the 49ers quarterback uh, during the practice? Was it still Y.A. Tittle? Y.A. Tittle was the quarterback and John Brody was the backup. Who gave you uh, more problems defending, Brody or uh, Tittle? Well, I wouldn't. I could care less about either one of them. It's the guy in front of me that was trying to catch the ball that I was concerned about. You know, my my whole thing was, in order to catch the ball, you got to get past me. You got two jobs: one to get past me, which I wasn't going to let you do, and the other one was to catch the ball, which I wasn't going to let you do. So that's you know that's the way I played the game: beat you up all the way down the field until the ball was in the air, then. It was me and you going for the ball. But it was a lot of great guys. And, you know, I mean, it was one of those situations where you, you, all of a sudden you're on a team where a lot of people that you idolize and when you're in college. I mean, I had White Turtle was there. John Brody was there. Hugh McElhaney was there. R.C. Owens was there. Uh, Joe Perry. Leo Namalini. Bob St. Clair. All these great names that, that, that meant something Back in the day, and here I am, you know, friends with him. And I mean, that was, to me, that was the greatest accomplishment, the fact that I was on the team. We interviewed Then I got traded. Then I got traded to Pittsburgh. I played the exhibition season. I played the exhibition season with San Francisco, and the last, after the last game, they traded me to Pittsburgh to make room for Ray Norton, who was an Olympic sprinter, where they were going to thought they could, you know, turn into a very, famous wide receiver, but they forgot to find out whether or not he could catch. Couldn't catch nothing. The ball hit him all on top of the head, in the mouth, in the face mask. And so after they sent me to Pittsburgh, they cut him. Two days later, they cut him. They found out he had no hands. He couldn't catch. He was fast. He could outrun everybody, but he couldn't catch. The 49ers made that yep. mistake again in the 80s with Ronaldo Nehemiah. They thought he could They did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. They thought they could turn a speed guy into a pass receiver, and it, and it could work if the guy could catch. But neither one could catch because uh, they were more concerned about getting hit because they weren't used to getting hit. They weren't used to the violence of the sport. So now I'm at Pittsburgh, and I got my roommate now is Big Daddy Lipscomb. I got wow. Bobby Lane playing quarterback. Buddy Parker is the coach. Tom the Bomb Tracer. Uh, Walt Michael brother. The Michael brothers were playing. I mean, I was I was exposed to some uh, very great and famous people there. Do you ever ask yourself? What the heck am I doing here, or did you feel that you fit in uh, from the beginning? I ask myself, even today, how did I get here? I mean, dude, I mean, the things that I've done, the things that I've experienced, and the places that I've been, 
is a long way from a ghetto boy, let me tell you. Bob Sinclair, we interviewed a couple of years ago. He was talking about he was eating raw fish. He didn't make you eat that raw fish, did he? Uh, there's no way, man. I didn't eat nothing raw. I mean, when he used to bring out that food, dude, the, the bottom of the big old pan would be blood full of blood. Guys eating raw meat like animals, man. No way. They, they even did that pregame. My pregame meal was two scoops of vanilla ice cream. <laughs> the kind of stuff I see those guys would eat, man, was sickening. How difficult the choice was it to go from Pittsburgh and the NFL to the Oakland Raiders and the American Football League? Well, you know, my signing bonus when I was coming out of Northwestern was $1,900. My starting salary was 9005 so now when I played one season one season with Pittsburgh and I went back to California to uh, to get my things to go back for the next season, and I get a call from the American Football League, Al Davis, across the bay. I'm in San Francisco now. He says, uh, uh, we need you over here to bring some excitement and uh, bring some more uh, exciting play over here because, you know, the scores – Scores were like basketball scores in the American Football League at that time, man. It was like 55 to 60. I mean, all, it was a passing game, which is which is what the AFL is today. It's a passing game. So I said, well, I mean, I think about it. He said, well, look, I give you $500 raise. It'll make, we'll bump up your salary to $500. I said, what? I can make 10000 He said, yeah. I ran across the bay. I didn't need no car. I ran across the bay bridge and became a Raider the very, very same day. What was L. Davis like? Davis was a football genius. The guy knew football. He knew people. He knew personnel. He knew how. He knew how to talk to people. He knew how to motivate you. I mean, he was a. He was definitely dedicated to football. He was a football fanatic, football expert, and understood how to manipulate people. Now was John Madden with the Raiders then? No, no. John Madden came after me. John Madden came after I got traded to Kansas City from. From the Raiders, uh, I played against Madden. So Al Davis was there the whole time I was there. He was my coach uh, when, when I was there. Who was your most difficult guy to cover in the NFL? Well, you know, I'm the hammer. I can't say that anybody was difficult. Uh, the ones I look forward to because it was it was Mano Mano was uh, was uh, San Diego Chargers had Bambi had Lance Allworth. Charlie Hennigan was at Houston. Um, there were a lot of fast guys, and, I, and, I, and that was great for me. Man, I loved the competition. Otherwise, I'd go to sleep out there. My worst guys—the worst guys for me to cover—were two players from uh, from the Boston Patriots, uh, Cole Claw and Capaletti. These guys were like running in mud. They ran in molasses. You know, I knew I could give them a twenty-yard head start and and beat them to the ball. But every time I look up, they're free. They're waving at the, at the quarterback. They didn't ran past me because I knew they weren't that dangerous to me. But those were the guys that gave me more trouble because I, you know, it was hard to stay 100% concentration on them all the time because I knew I could cover them. So I'd look up and he'd be down the field catching a 20-yard pass for me. And I had to go get him and try to make him fumble. But those two guys gave me the most trouble because they were the slowest. And I knew I could, I could cover them if, if I, if I stayed 100% involved in the game, but that's pretty hard to do when you know that you're better than somebody. Let's see, George Blandon was the quarterback at Houston back then. He, he was old even then, right? Yeah, George Blandon had Charlie Hennigan to throw to. I mean, George Blandon, man, he threw some hard bullets. They guy could really throw the ball, but he had a great receiver land, uh, Charlie Hennigan at that time. I don't 
many people remember all these names, but uh, Hennigan was a, was a tremendous football player, and he and I had battles, you know. He, I, there were certain teams that I played that I knew I'd always get an interception because most of, most of the best receivers in pro football are right-handed, so they like to catch on the right side, which means that they came on my side all the time because I was a left defensive, defensive cornerback. And most right-handed players like to catch the ball across the middle over their left shoulder. They don't like so much... Uh, Catching outside over the over the right shoulder—that's the hardest pass for them to catch. So they didn't really throw that much. It was really slant ends or, or hooks to the inside. And that's the right-handed player. So I knew when I played the fast guys, those were the patterns that they favored. So Hennigan didn't get a lot of his receptions in a hundred uh, catch season against you. No, that, nobody had any records against me, dude. <laughs> you know, I, I got the records. You know, I mean, there are guys in the Hall of Fame, man, who has who have ten, fifteen less interceptions than me, which is kind of weird. I had forty interceptions over my my career, and there are guys in the Hall of Fame who didn't make All Pros many times that I have, and, and don't have as many interceptions as I have, but. I understand that because I was a, con- a controversial player, you know. And when you when you bring and breed controversy, then people don't vote for you and think they don't like you, but they love to see you play. It's a it's a it's a negative dichotomy that's hard to overcome when people vote for you. It's like being all pro back in the day. Players used to vote for the other players to be all pro. How's somebody going to vote for me? And I'm beating you on the head and blanking you out and making you look bad. And you're gonna you're gonna vote. For me, as the best defensive back, no, that doesn't work. From the Raiders, you went to Kansas City, and your coach there was Hank Stram. What was he like? Hank Stram was a great manipulator. But it's hard to be a bad coach when you have, that time you had, I think we had a limit of 42 players, and 20 of them were all pros. You got an all pro in every position. Your pep talk is, let's get them. So... You know, Hank was an offensive innovator. He knew how to operate an offense based on the talent that he had. He knew that Lenny Dawson was not a drop-back quarterback because he wasn't tall. We had linemen that were like 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, with Jim Hill and Ed Buddy. The guards were 6'6", six, six, the tackles were 6'6", six, six, and he knew that Lenny couldn't see over these people, so he invented this moving pocket that he called. So Lenny would roll out. And the two guards and the two defensive tack, the offensive tackles would roll in the same, the same, uh, direction as Lenny would to keep a pocket in front of Lenny all the time so that he could see, see downfield because first of all, he couldn't see over these tall guys and he was not a good drop back quarterback. So he created this rolling pocket. So he was a good, he was a good, uh, offensive technical coach. I'll tell you what, those linebackers, I think were the best of all time. There with uh, Willie Lanier and Bobby Bell. I mean, you guys were unstoppable. Well, like I said, we had an all-pro at every position. You had you had two cornerbacks. You had you had me. You had Buck Buchanan. You had Jerry Mays. You had Johnny Robinson. You had Dawson. You had Otis Taylor. I mean, we, we, we were we were deep man in talent. So you make it to the Super Bowl, playing the Packers. The first Super Bowl ever it was. It, then it wasn't even called the Super Bowl. It was the uh, World Championship game or something like that. And uh, you, you come out with this statement that you're going to knock out the Boyd Dollar and Carol Dale. Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm comparing who, who I'm going to cover 
against the guys that I covered in, in American Football League. And neither one of these guys lived up to the people that I had to cover in American Football League. So I wasn't concerned about Boyd Dollar or Carol Dale. And if, and if people look at the film, I put Boyd Dollar out of the game after the second play. He ran a slant in on me. I hit him, and he walked off the field with his shoulder dragging the ground. So I accomplished that. But it turned out to be a mistake because what happened was they put in old man Max McGee who hadn't played in five years and went, was out drunk all night comes back and have the best game of his career, not against me, because they didn't want him to be knocked out of the game. So he did not run one pass pattern at me. He went on the other side and beat up on Willie Mitchell, which I don't understand how he could do that because Willie Mitchell is twice as fast as he was, but Willie was intimidated by him. So, you know, when Boyd Dollar made his moves, he was ran he ran past Willie Mitchell several times before Willie could get his feet moving because he was intimidated by the fact that Here's Max McGee in front of him. And uh, so they never threw at me. They threw one pass at me. I took out Boyd Dowd. And after that, it wasn't, yeah, I just sit there and watch the game until about a minute and a half left to go in the game. And they decided to run a sweep at me. And I said, all right, I'm going to kill somebody down there. So I went, I went flying up there and I took out Fuzzy. I took out the first two guards. And I made the tackle on Donnie Anderson. But unfortunately, his knee hit me on the top of the head. And I was in la-la land for a few seconds. Do you think part of the problem was that being an outspoken black athlete in the 60s, the media made you out to be something that you weren't and made people not like you? Of course, but then that's my history. I mean, anytime you are an innovator and anytime you speak out for something that's against what everybody else is doing, uh, then you're obviously going to draw more attention. Sometimes the attention is negative, sometimes it's positive. If you have a strong enough personality like me, you don't really care which it is. As long as they spell your name right and talk about you, then I can deal with it. Uh, so that was that was something that made me more famous than most defensive backs because you can go to a game, you ask somebody now who's their favorite team, they could tell you their team now, name me the four defensive backs on your favorite team. Most people can't do that. They can name the running back, the quarterbacks, the guy who catches the ball, but they can't name you four four defensive backs and then throw them at all. Give me the give me the linebackers and the defensive backs. You might get three three people right, but after that they'll be stumbling. But when you went to see the Raiders, they went to see Chiefs. You know, there's a guy down there wearing white shoes. Uh, they think they call himself the Hammer. Yeah. So you know, notoriety is what it's about. If you're doing the job, the notoriety comes, but you can also boost it along a little bit if you know how. Now after your career. At what point did you find out you didn't want to be an architect? I had a very, I, you know, I, I was an architect during this, the whole time I played football. I worked for Bechtel Steel. I was an architect during the off-season because back in the day, you really had an off-season. It's not like today. These guys didn't have an off-season. They're now forced to come into, come into uh, a facility and, and work out and, and do an unsupervised workout, they call it. But it's, it's necessary and it's a must that you come. If you don't, you get into a a negative situation with the team. So back in the day, it was six months of football and six months was your life. So I worked for Bechtel Field in off season. Once I stopped playing football and went full-time as an architect, I had a little difficult time going past six months. After I got into the nine-month situation, I started looking around because the walls started to close in on me, and I was saying, wow, I, can't, I really can't do this for, for the rest of my life because it's just the transition is much too difficult. 
So I looked around for something else to do, and most of the guys back in those days were selling insurance after football. Man, there was nobody made any money, so you had to have an extra job, even while you played. There were insurance salesmen, there were car salesmen. I said, no, I don't want to do that. One night, I'm watching television, and I see uh, a show called Julia. Diane Carroll was the first black actress who had her own television series back in the day. And I noticed that each week the guest star was a new boyfriend. So I said, hell, I'm better looking than any of those guys. I'm going to Hollywood and become Dan Kills working on the Julia show. So that was my motivation and that was my aim. And it took me three days to accomplish that. I got signed to a three-year deal to play Diane Kills' boyfriend on the Julia show. What was it like kissing Diane Carroll? It's, uh, it's the same with all pretty women. It's nice to be around them. <laughs> But back then, TV was a lot cleaner. You didn't have, like, the cable where you would have seen you in bed with Diane Carroll, right? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure on that part anyway, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience for me. And luckily, I was sitting in a conversation one day, and a guy walks by, and he says, you're the hammer, right? And I said, yeah. He says, I'm doing a football. I'm doing a movie. I got a football game in it, and I don't know anything about football. Was you direct? all the scenes and put all the football sequences together. So I want the football game to be realistic. And I said, yeah, no, no doubt. And the movie was MASH. I played Spear Chucker in the movie MASH, which was my first movie. Why didn't you get a chance to be in the TV series? Did they ask you? Yeah, I don't want to be television series, man. That's that's like that's like a job. That's like playing football again, man. You know, you you got you to gotta be there every day. No, for, for, for 46 weeks or 22 weeks. No, I didn't want to do that. I want to stay in the movie business. That's what I was going to do. I mean, well, I could work a month or two months on a show and, and then have my free time. So you don't want to be clinger and wear the uh, women's outfits? <laughs> I don't want to wear them at any time, man. I mean, you see some of these guys make ugly women, dude. I see Ben Rames made an ugly chick in a movie. Uh, Wesley Snipes dressed up. Even, Kurt, even Tony Curtis dressed up as a woman. They made some ugly women. I wouldn't go in that room, dude. Or Martin Lawrence now with Big Mama. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a throwback, man. That's why I started making action movies to get rid of that image, man. My whole, my whole idea of making your films was to come into the movies as a hero, as I consider myself, uh, my personality, my character is, is as a hero, not to come in and do Stephen Fletch and stuff. I don't do comedy. I don't do funny. All I do is fight, take out the bad guy, and make love to the pretty women and ride off in the sunset. That's my style. How much fun was that? Everything I do is fun, dude. Otherwise, I don't even bother. If it ain't fun, you can't you can't pay me, man. I mean, I turned down a lot of roles that are against what I believe in or against my image, and it's not about money. You know, I tell them, you keep the money, but the image is more important to me than the money. What is it with Gary, Indiana? I mean, two football players from Gary, Indiana, became very successful Hollywood actors, you and Alex Karras. Is there a good drama school out there? No, it's called escapism. Get out as fast as you can because there's nothing else for you to do here. And if you stay here, you will die of steel dust. So it's about escapism, man. It's about it's about having a drive that people who are from big cities don't have because big city is full of excitement and things to do. You're from a little hole in the hole in the ground, man. You know, you see the world out there looks more exciting to you than it does to them, and so your goal becomes greater. I laugh all the time when they talk about Michael Jackson putting the museum in Gary. He didn't want any part of Gary. As soon as he got out of there, he never wanted to go back. 
Yeah, well, that's that's how most <laughs> most celebrities are. They come from a little town, but you know, they claim him, and he doesn't have to claim them. They don't really care. They know that he came from there, and so they claim him. The fact that he doesn't reciprocate, nobody cares. How easy was the transition from actor to director? It was uh, very easy based on the fact that you got to consider the time period. This is like 1969, and it wasn't cool to be black at that time. It wasn't as cool then as it is now to be black. They were still having riots and sticking dogs on people and being real ugly to, to black people. Uh, in public. And so I decided that if I'm going to come into the business, I was going to come in it on my own terms. So the first thing I did after I did MASH was call a press conference and said, you know, I got three rules in Hollywood. I'm going to come into Hollywood and I'm going to be an action star. And my three rules are you can't kill me in a movie. I win all my fights in a movie and I get the girl at the end of the movie if I want her. Now, I knew I knew this was not going to be acceptable to the industry, but I got the attention that I wanted, and I knew that if I was going to have these three things happening in my films, I was going to have to produce my own, direct my own, write my own, find the financing for my own, and create my own my own company. And that's what I did. I created my own company to maintain the image that I wanted to create and sustain if I'm going to be in the industry. Uh, because we needed heroes at that time. We need. We had no black heroes. We had Sidney Poitier, who was a great actor, good actor, but, you know, he couldn't fight. He didn't hit nobody. He didn't beat nobody. We had a lot of funny people. Everybody was doing comedy. Comedy was okay, but we needed a broader spectrum. All black people ain't funny. So I was out to show that we could also be marketable as action stars and as heroes. I would have liked to see the movie with you and Jim Brown where one of you was a good guy, one of you guys was a bad guy, and see who came out as a winner. We did that in uh, Take a Hard Ride. Did a Western with Lee Van Cleef called Take a Hard Ride. Jim had some money that he was taking someplace, and I was tagging along with him, trying to get it away from him. But at the same time, we worked together to keep the bad guys away from the money, but I said, once we get to where we're going, I'm taking the money. And he said, well, we'll see about that. And that was a pretty good movie. Take a hard ride. We tried it in uh, Spain with uh, Lee Van Cleef. And we had a big, long fight along the way. Who won the fight? Go shoot a movie, dog. I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to see it now. Thank you, right. And then Richard Roundtree comes along with Shaft, which was hugely popular. Yeah, it, it, it was timing. It was not a really, it was not a good movie. It was the timing. The timing was right for that character, for that purpose. What I said, we needed heroes. Uh, Isaac Hayes really pushed the movie because the song became more famous than the movie. There are a lot of right. people who walk around and talk about Shaft who never really saw the movie, but they know the name and they've heard the music. But they don't remember Roundtree. Because every time I'm, I mean, 50 percent of the time I'm out, people are calling me Roundtree because I'm round. I'm I'm what Roundtree is supposed to look like because I still look like myself, you know. Yeah. Roundtree. I mean, if you walk past him, you wouldn't even know it was him. So people see me and they go, "Hey, Patrice!" No, 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 you got it wrong, dude. I'm the hammer because I'm still tall, good-looking, handsome. Ain't no, ain't no gray hair hanging hanging out of my face. Uh, ain't no wrinkles hanging under my chin. It's still intact. Okay, so I still look like I should be. Brown Tree or Williamson or Brown, because I get called all of those names. 
because they don't look like themselves anymore. And I fortunately continue to look like me. No, you still look good. I mean, another guy from the 70s, Billy D. Williams, you look at him now and you go, oh, my God, what happened to him? That's what you can say about Roundtree. That's what you can say about Brown. I mean, uh, you know, Mother Nature deals with people in, in different ways. I just eat a lot of black jelly beans. Today. They don't. I'll tell you what, Carl Weathers still looks good, though. Got no hair. He don't look like Carl Weathers anymore. <laughs> or Sylvester Stallone, you look at him and you go, oh, my God, what happened to him? Too much plastic surgery. Well, he ate too many white jelly beans. You see, that blew him up. My black jelly beans keep me intact, keep me uh, like I was before. He ate too many white jelly beans, man, and they just blew him up. That's all. What do you think about the NFL today? When they're saying that there's too much contact, it's too violent. We got to make it a little easier on the uh, players. Well, I, I think I think that the offense ought to wear ought to wear yellow flags, and the defense ought to wear red flags. Uh, so we can have flag football. They wouldn't have to worry about penalties or, or getting hit too hard or making these uh, dynamic hits on people. So just put flags, yellow for the offense and red for the defense, and then we'll be cool. It seems nowadays the tackling technique is lead with your head, which leads to all sorts of wonderful injuries. You know, That's not yeah, the way you were taught. Not, I mean, that's the way, listen, listen, when we were taught in high grade school, you're taught. Put your head on the numbers. If a guy's running at you and he's doing all that wiggling and dancing coming at you, put your head on the numbers in his chest and lift him up and drop it. You do that today, you might get suspended, $10,000 fine, and a penalty. So that's how much the game has changed because that was the tech, tech, tackle technique that was taught. So do you have any movies in the works right now? I'm off to Germany next week. I'm doing a action film with uh, Claude Van Damme. Uh, got a few bad guys left overseas that I, that I forgot to get, so I'm going back to get them. So who else is in the movie, Van Damme and you, or you're just going to uh, produce it? No, no, I'm, I'm directing it. I'm starring in it with Van Damme, but that, that's enough people. You know, his popularity in Europe is big, and so is mine. So uh, I work a lot more in Europe than I do here. As a matter of fact, my fan base in Europe is about 10 times bigger than it is in the States. Why is that? Well, it's a very simple reason, dude. In America, I'm a black actor, and in Europe, I'm an action star. So once they start pigeonholing you and putting you, putting you in certain categories, then your exposure becomes limited. So if I'm in a film, they call it Fred Williamson's latest and newest black film, and they play it in so-called 25 black markets, which include Chicago and, and New York and Memphis, Tennessee and Philadelphia, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., these so-called 25 key markets where the black population is the biggest. That's where they release the films. But in Europe, it's different. You know, I'm an action star. I'm not a black action star. I'm a good-looking action star. Do you need a 41-year-old good-looking attorney to be in your movie? I always, I always look at people like that to kill. I mean, they go down real fast, and I like that. You know, as long as you don't take too much time, as long as you don't take too much time going down, it's a good thing. I'm available, Ellie. What about you? Yeah, I'm available. No, 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 no. You guys are gonna give me that ooh ah ah stuff. No, no. When I shoot, you just gotta go in the air and down, dude. No, no sounds, no nothing. Just go. As long as you pay, I'll go down as quick as you want. Well, you know the name of my company, dude. The name of my company is Po Boy. So you might not like to pay. 
So you're what? So you're leaving for Germany next week. How long does it take to shoot a movie from start to finish? Uh, over there, it's probably take me um, forty-five days. Probably take me forty-five days. Over here, it takes less because you have you know uh, more experienced people in the states. But over there, it takes about forty-five days to, to get it through popcorn stage. So it doesn't sound like you're going to slow down anytime soon. I don't. I don't. I can't afford to, man. I mean, I got way too much energy, uh, and, I, and there's a lot of things I haven't accomplished yet. I don't know what they are, but I have this feeling of restlessness. Things that I haven't been able to accomplish because I've been limited, uh, which which unfortunately made me a slow starter because I couldn't accomplish the things that I want to because of of the racial situation in America. So what I'm doing now. Uh, I should have been doing 20 years ago, but you know, fortunately, I, as I say, I have all this energy and I still look the same. So somebody is keeping me together for some purpose and for some reason. The guy who I can't believe is an action star is Tom Cruise. He did all those Mission Impossible. The guy looks like the kid next door. Well, Tom Cruise is your hero. There's no way he's a brothers and sisters hero. I guarantee you that. Any dude that's five foot two walking down the street, you can slap across the street anytime you want. There's no way Tom Cruise could be my hero or any other brother's hero. Forget about it. It's all photography and it's all trick stuff, man. Yeah, I mean, it looks like Katie Holmes could beat him up on any given uh, day. Well, Angelique Jolie surely can. (laughs) And and has. (laughs) So when is the Fred Williamson story going to come out? In a book or a movie? No, I know too much. I know too much, man. There's no way my... There's no way... They let me live through my autobiography. I know too much. I've had too many experiences, man. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, boss. And I'll send you my resume. <laughs> yeah. And I'll send you a bullet. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Thank you to our guests, Kaya Boone and Fred Williamson. Maybe next time we'll have David Spada in the studio. Although my preference is for an attractive female if it comes down to the choice of David or the female. Hope you have a great day, night, week, month, year, whatever. Tune in again, Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com.